Well, good afternoon, everyone. So we're going to be continuing our study in regards to the law of God. Last Lord's Day, we talked primarily in regards to the moral law. And we're going to be continuing that today, but we're going to be focusing on the benefits of God's moral law. But before we begin, let us first and foremost go to the Lord our God in prayer. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful for this time that we get to spend today diving into your word, studying your law, which we just recited. Lord, I ask that as we study the benefits of your law, that we may be edified, that we may be convicted by what your word teaches, and that we may not, in our lives, in society, neglect to take heed to your standard, your law, which never changes. So, Lord, I pray that you may equip me um, as I stand behind this pulpit to preach only the truth, to only preach what your word teaches, um, and to preach and teach it with conviction and clarity. I ask that you may um, grant to all those who are listening eyes to see and ears to hear that truth and that you may open their hearts and their minds to understand these words, O Lord. And I pray again that you may be glorified and that we as a church may be edified today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So over the last couple of weeks, as I've taken over, I'm teaching in regards to the law of God, since of course, as you all know, Pastor Andrew has gone on to... Um, Make a lot of money, basically, hopefully, Lord willing. Um, so one of the things that I focused in on was the fact of the different categories as it pertains to the law of God. Now, if you remember, you know, I spent time talking about the, that threefold view as it pertains to the law, starting first with the ceremonial law. And if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we discussed what that was those types and shadows, those sacrifices, that royal priesthood, all meant to point our eyes towards the direction of Jesus Christ, all meant to signify that work that Christ himself was to fulfill. And we noted how when Christ comes to fulfill that work, what the ceremonial law was pointing to is no longer needed because we have the substance Christ himself. So the ceremonial law, as we know it, is done away with because it's been fulfilled in Christ. Then we noted with the civil law or judicial law, what that was, which was all those laws, not just the penal codes, but then also the, um, also the dietary laws, as well as the clothing laws, which separated the nation of Israel, from the rest of the world. And how the purpose and intent of that was to mark that separation, but not permanently. As is so clearly indicated in, for example, the story of Jonah and Nineveh itself, where obviously the intent was never for there to be a permanent separation between Jew and Gentiles. When Christ comes, when Christ fulfills all that was needed to do, what does he tell the disciples to do? To go to all the nations, Matthew 28, and make disciples of them. So what do we see happen 
in the book of Acts. The gospel going forth beyond the nation of Israel to all the world itself. That was one of the reasons, as we noted, that Peter had the vision where those foods that were once unclean were no longer to be considered unclean itself. So those laws expired with the nation of Israel. Outside of, of course, those moral principles that are derived from the last category, which is the moral law. Now, by that moral law, what we noted was those were those standards, those moral standards summarized in the Ten Commandments that God gives to us. Now, we noted, if you recall, that we say that it's summarized in the Ten Commandments because that's exactly what we see when we look at the Ten Commandments is a summary of all of God's moral law. And if you're just merely looking to the summary itself, you're not going to get or understand the full scope of the moral law. You need to look at the entirety of Scripture to understand truly what each of those commandments truly mean. And then we saw how last Lord's Day, that in one aspect, the moral law was abrogated, not in the sense of its continuing influence, but in the sense for believers that it doesn't condemn us anymore because of the fact that we have placed our faith in Christ. However, even though we have placed our faith in Christ and the curse of the law has been done away with in the believer, it still continues to be that guiding rule by which we are to live. As we noted in so many different passages that Jesus himself says in John chapter 14 and John chapter 15, John himself reiterates in, the, in um, 1 John that if we love God, we will keep those commandments. So now this brings us to today. Being that the moral law was not done away with in the same sense that the ceremonial and civil law was, it is important for us to consider in what way we can benefit from God's moral law in our lives. Today, what we're going to do is focus on that, how we can benefit on God's moral law. To do that, we're going to be looking at a particular text of Scripture and using that text, more or less, as an outline to draw out the many benefits of God's law. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm chapter 19. And we're going to be reading from verses 7 through 14. And again, this is Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 through 14. David writes, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. 
O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, oftentimes, when we read this passage, many people take the passage that we're just looking at and equate it to the entirety of God's most holy word. And now, I don't necessarily disagree with that because I do think that there is an application to all of Scripture that we see here in Psalm chapter 19. Now, that being said, while I do think there may be some application to the whole of Scripture, really by way of synecdoche, where a part of something represents the whole of something, I don't think we ought to ignore the fact that David, in writing this psalm, uses certain phrases to make us look primarily to the law. And let's take a look at that. And you know, by the law, I'm referring, and I'll explain why later, the entirety of that law. In verse 7, for example, David writes, the law of the Lord, and that word law in the Hebrew is Torah, which overwhelmingly is translated as law in the Bible. Continuing in verse 7, where he writes the testimony of the Lord, the word testimony in Hebrew is aduth, which is overwhelmingly translated as testimony. And when you look throughout the Bible to what that word oftentimes is associated with, it is oftentimes associated with the law. It is either associated with the Ark of the Testimony, as we see, for example, in Numbers chapter 4, verse 5, where Moses writes, When the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons shall go in, and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the Ark of Testimony with it. When it's used in this way, it is associated with the ceremonial law. The word is also associated with the tablets of the testimony, which is the Ten Commandments, the summation of the moral law. And we see an example of that in Exodus 31, verse 18, where Moses writes, When he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. And then in verse 8, where David writes, The precepts of the Lord, that word precepts in Hebrew is pakud, which is only translated as precepts in the New American Standard. Now, the King James and ESV will also use commandment or statute as well. But you find this word used only in the Psalms and mainly used in Psalm 119, which just so happens to be David's psalm in regards to the law. In verse 8, where Paul or where David writes, the commandment of the Lord, the word commandment in the Hebrew, it's mitzvah which is overwhelmingly translated as commandment. And when you look throughout the Old Testament, this word, when used, primarily refers to the commandments of God. And then finally, in verse 9, when David writes the judgments of the Lord, that word, judgments, in the Hebrew is mispah, which is primarily rendered either as justice or ordinance or judgment. Now, context does matter, in this word in order to rightly understand what is meant. But in this case, how this word is used is in accordance with right and wrong. So see, all of those Hebrew words that we just went over, Torah for law, aduth for testimony, pakud for precepts, mitzvah for commandments, and misfat for judgment are all pointing our eyes towards God's law. So therefore, I do think that this passage is a great one for us to use to see the benefits and uses of God's law for us today. So let's do this. So let's first take a look at one of the benefits that 
this passage um, leads us to in Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Now, some translations, instead of restoring, will say converting the soul. Let's ask ourselves this question. How does the law restore or convert our soul? We know that no person can perfectly keep God's law because we know if that was the case, there would have been no need for Christ to come. So how is it that the law restores or converts our soul? How God's law does this is quite simply by exposing us to the fact that we cannot perfectly keep God's standards. And we have a nasty tendency as humans to set up our own standards for right and wrong. And I've mentioned this plenty of times before. When we judge ourselves by ourselves, you know, we come out pretty clean. Now, if you go and ask most people, are you basically good? What are they going to tell you? Yeah, I think I'm pretty good. If you were to ask most people, your understanding of right and wrong, you think it's pretty accurate? You think you're off the mainstream? They're going to tell you, yeah, no, I think my understanding of right or wrong is pretty right. If you have most people assuming that they're basically good and that they're for the most part right as it pertains to their idea of right or wrong, according to their definition, you're going to be hard pressed to find anyone who feels that they need a change. God's law, however, reveals to us something about ourselves that merely looking introspectively or within ourselves does not reveal that we are not good and that our idea idea of right or wrong is not right, is incorrect. You know, as I think about this, you know, there, there are four categories that came to my mind of our understanding or definition of sin relative to God's definition of sin. You, know, you have where God calls something sin, and then we also call that same thing sin. So no problems there. But then you have where God calls something sin, and we don't call that same thing sin. And then you have where, called, where God does not call something sin, but we do call it sin. And then you have where God does not call something sin, and we also do not call that same thing sin. Now, it's that second and third part that I mentioned, where basically our understanding of sin and God's definition of sin is not the same. It's that problem that makes it necessary for us to look to God's law. Because see, apart from God's law, there are many things that we would call sin, for example, that God does not, thus creating this unbiblical legalism. But then on the flip side, and this is the more common thing, where there would be many things that we would say is fine, but then God calls sin, thus causing us to live in rebellious, in rebellion to Christ, disobediently, licentiously. I mean, Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, that he would not have known coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. He would not have known that it was wrong had it not been contained within the law itself. God's law exposes to us the depths of our depravity to such an extent that it makes you realize there is no possible way to be right before God by merely attempting to live a good life. See, the perfection and holiness of God's law exposes our imperfection and our unholiness. 
by doing that, it puts us in the position of realizing that our justification must come from some other way outside of ourselves because it cannot be attained by us. In doing so, it forces us to look for a Messiah, to look for a Savior, someone to come and rescue us from the road to hell that we are on. To put it plainly, it points us to Jesus. And is that not what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, that the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ? See, you can't, when you're looking at a perfect standard that you must keep in order to be justified, assume that you're able to do that. Because you can't. So when you look at that perfect law, you must of necessity look to Christ. And it's when you are looking to Christ, forsaking of your sins, and placing your faith in him, that you are justified. And it's in this way that the law produces the effect that we see David writing about here, that it converts the soul. Not that in and of itself, you attempting to keep the law is what does it, but because your inability to do that forces you to look to the only person who can save you, Christ himself. I love what John Calvin wrote in his Institutes. He puts it in this way. So long as he is permitted to appeal to his own judgment, he substitutes a hypocritical for a real righteousness and contented with this sets up certain factitious observances in opposition to the grace of God. But after he is forced to weigh his conduct in the balance of the law, renouncing all dependence on this fancied righteousness, he sees that he is at an infinite distance from holiness. And on the other hand, that he teems with innumerable vices of which he formerly seemed free, end quote. So see, when you have the law before you, it humbles you. It makes you realize, I am not good. Here I am thinking that I am righteous, that I am good. But here is this standard that looks at me and tells me, no, you are not good. So it humbles you to the point of realizing that you need a Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's one benefit that we have as it pertains to the law. The second is this. David writes in the same chapter, chapter 19, verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You know, as humans, we think very highly of ourselves and the wisdom that we conjure up. We believe that by our collective wisdom, we can solve all problems and do all things. Now, however, one thing that I think is pretty clear when you look, actually look throughout the course of history is that our wisdom is not always that great. Sometimes our wisdom is not that wise at all and actually quite dumb. Sometimes our wisdom is just plain wrong and needs to be corrected by new wisdom. I mean, just to give a quick example, I want you to think about the ever-changing standard as it pertains to a proper diet. You know, one year, the collective wisdom is that, you know, it must be low-fat. The next day, you hear, actually, you know what, a high-fat diet, but low in carbs, that's the way to go. One year, you know what, have no butter whatsoever. If you eat butter, you're just going to die on the spot. The next day, you know what? 
Avoid vegetable oil, but butter is great. One year, you know what? You don't want to eat meat at all. If you eat meat, you're just going to get cancer and just die. The next meat, it's carnivore diet. Eat nothing but meat. Avoid maybe some vegetables where you really want to eat a whole bunch of meat itself. No one looking to the wisdom of man for proper eating will ever feel like they're on the right path because it changes all the time. And this extends not just to eating, but anything where man wants to be wise by themselves. Now, the scriptures warn us not to be wise in our own eyes. But you know what? That's what man does all the time. They want to be wise in their own eyes. And in doing so, they're on shaky ground. They are never sure. They're never on firm footing. As Christians, one thing that we can be confident about is that God's testimony is always certain. There is no questioning whether what God tells us is correct or incorrect. His standards do not change because God doesn't change. And because God is immutable, but not only immutable, but omniscient, he is able to definitely, definitively, and certainly tell us something without changing. Thus, when we look to God's testimony or his commandments, we know that we are on sure ground. Matter of fact, the Hebrew word that we see here for sure is aman, which is the root word for another Hebrew word that we all know, amen. God's commands are true. They are sure. They are reliable. And being that we can be certain about this testimony, when a person looks to them for guidance and direction, they will grow in wisdom. It'll take the simple-minded person and make them wise. David writes in Psalm 119, verse 24, your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. They are my teachers. He continues to write in Psalm 119, verses 97, verse 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. You hear this? Your testimonies make him wiser than the teacher's. Because that is is that that he is meditating on. He goes on, I understand more than the aged. Why? Because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How is he? He says, you yourself talking to God. You have taught me. How has God taught him? Through his word, through his law. How sweet are your words to my taste? Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And then finally, in Psalm 119, verse 130, he writes, the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. One of the exercises I'll never forget that Dr. T had Deborah and I do when we were engaged was to go through all the Ten Commandments and see how we can uphold and break the Ten Commandments towards one another. Now, obviously, yeah, 
you, you think it'd be kind of easy to do commandments five through 10. One through four is very difficult to try and figure out how you're gonna break that towards someone since it's obviously mainly um, regarding that vertical relationship between us and God. But I bring that up to say that that exercise, if you go through it, will force you to realize that there are a number of different ways that you can fail as a spouse if you op- it will open your eyes to the number of ways that you will mindlessly create problems in your marriage because you are being wise in your own eyes versus just submitting and following to God's standard. And that same exercise should not be just regulated to the role of marriage, but when you apply it to every area of your life, it will keep you from being simple-minded. It will make you wise. You will be able to walk in wisdom. Just read through the book of Proverbs, my brothers and sisters. One of the things that you'll see over and over and over again when you read Proverbs is the fact that if you want wisdom, go to his word. You seek his commandments. You seek to do them. Not the wisdom of the world. I mean, we are in a day and age now to where you have, we are probably from a formal education standpoint, the most educated society in all of human history. I mean, you have more people with masters and PhDs. But look at us. We are so smart that we don't know the difference between a man and a woman. We are so educated that we don't understand the basics of common sense. That's how wise we've become, alienating ourselves from true wisdom. Wisdom come from God. So that's the second benefit that we have as it pertains to God's law, is that we will have true wisdom. We will no longer be simple-minded, but we will be wiser than the aged, than the intellectuals of the world, because we have that true wisdom. Remember what Paul writes in Colossians. In Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. David goes on to write in Psalm 19. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now, this caused caused me to think because how in the world does God's law rejoice the heart? I mean, when you read Paul, in Romans, it would seem as though the law didn't make him feel any better. It caused him to mourn rather than rejoice. So how in the world could David tell us that God's law rejoices the heart, that his precepts rejoice the heart? Well, remember what I said, and I didn't really elaborate on it, so I guess I'll do that a little bit more here. But remember what I said earlier, that in this passage, I believe when he's talking about the law, he's actually referring to the entirety of the law, Not that, obviously, that we uphold, you know, all of the law, the ceremonial and the civil, but I do think that that's what he's referring to. And why that matters, I think, when we look at a passage, for example, like this, is that with the ceremonial law in particular, remember, the performance of those obligations was meant to draw the believer's eyes to Christ. Don't forget, they were types and shadows pointing to Christ until Christ the substance arrives. 
So while the Jews were to uphold the moral law, that is clear, they had those sacrifices in the ceremonial law to keep their eyes constantly focused on the Messiah. So ultimately, they rested in Christ, even in their imperfect following of God's moral law. Now, it is with their eyes always focused on Christ that they were able to faithfully follow God's moral law without falling into into despair. Likewise, I want you to think about that as believers who no longer need the types and shadows to point us to Christ. Because Christ has already come, we can rejoice when we follow God's moral law because our eyes are not fixed to that as the ends to attain righteousness because we know that Christ is our righteousness but we look at it as our rule of life. The moral law, apart from Christ, cannot rejoice the heart because we know that we are constantly falling short of keeping it. The moral law, when a person always keeps their eye on Christ for salvation, does rejoice the heart because we know that we are faithfully doing what God calls us to do. And if we fall short, And we will, so I won't even say if, when we fall short, we know that we have an advocate in Christ standing before the Father for us. So when we as believers cease to uphold God's moral law, we start to waver in our faith and confidence. We start to stumble and we lose our assurance. However, when we are faithfully keeping God's law, we will never stumble. David tells us, Psalm 119, verse 165, those who love your law have great peace. Nothing causes them to stumble. Peter, in 2 Peter, chapter 1, writes this, and I'm going to start in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God and Jesus, or of, of God and of our God and Savior, excuse me, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind, or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So if you practice these qualities that he notes here, you will never stumble. Not that 
you will lose your salvation because we know that nothing can pluck us from the hands of our mighty Savior. But your faith will never waver. You will never lose assurance. You will be diligently fighting, but your confidence will be there. So God's law, when our eyes are always focused on Christ and we're committed to obeying him, rejoice the heart because we know that we are honoring our Lord who bought us. David, going back to Psalm 19, goes on to say, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You know, with the commandments, the laws that we as humans create, there's always some flaw with it. It's never quite perfect. There's always something in it that makes it not as perfect as we would desire for it to be. Because primarily we are depraved by nature. Even the laws that we try to create by ourselves and apart from revelation will carry some of our imperfection in it. That is not the case as it pertains to God's law. And Paul agrees with David when he writes in Romans 7, verse 12, when he writes, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous. There is no flaw in God's law because there is no flaw in God. He alone is pure. He alone is holy, holy, holy. He alone is truly good. Therefore, those laws which he gives to us carry his holiness. And because this is the case, his law has the ability to open our eyes, to enlighten our eyes. Not only, as we saw earlier, does God's law convict us of our sinfulness and draw us to Christ by showing us a proper standard of right and wrong that we will be judged by, it also opens our eyes to actually know what is right or wrong. For us, the believer who has already been humbled by the law to the point of true repentance, a continued looking to God's law will now have the effect of opening our eyes even further to truly know what's right or wrong. Never forget, brothers and sisters, even though you are in Christ, you are secure in him. There are still some of those besetting sins. There are, your eyes may still be darkened in regards to errors that you didn't even realize were sins, even in your regenerated state. It is when you are consistently looking to his moral standard and examining yourself by it day after day that you will discover more of those sins in you to battle against, to fight against, to repent of. So it enlightens our eyes because it continues to show us those things that are truly wrong. From there, David goes on to write, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are all together righteous. God's law promises or promotes a proper form of judgment, of justice, excuse me, for nations to follow. Now, I mentioned earlier how the Hebrew word rendered judgment, mishpat, is also commonly rendered in the Bible as ordinance as well as justice. Of the three common ways that this word is rendered in English, actually the most common way 
that is translated into English as justice. And I was thinking about that because I could not help but think about when it comes to the understanding of justice, how perverted that understanding of justice is today in our culture. We don't, as a society, rightly understand justice. I mean, it's sickening to see how what the world declares to be just is anything but just. I mean, I want you to think about that with this past week. I mean, just this past week, Texas passed a law that said it's illegal to kill a baby in the womb who has a heartbeat after, I think it's six weeks. Now, any biblical, sane person who understands God's law could only look at that law and be like, what's wrong with that? Yes, if a baby has a heartbeat, why would you want to kill it? If you were to see the response from those who call for justice, you would have thought that Texas became the Egypt during the time of Moses, where they were killing infants that were already born. You would have thought that the governor of Texas was the new Herod in the New Testament, who were taking babies and executing them. How dare you force me to not kill my child? What kind of just government forces babies to be alive? There is no justice until we have the right to kill what we don't want. That's the justice that this world wants. And see, wicked and depraved people, which we all are apart from God and his grace, have no understanding of justice. They cannot consistently determine right from wrong, good from evil, true from false. Sin, the effects of the fall, has made that impossible. Therefore, if we want to have true justice, it can only be rooted in God's justice. And that justice is only found in God's law. Solomon writes in Proverbs 28, verse 5, Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. He writes in Proverbs 29, 18, Where there is no vision or revelation, the people are unrestrained. But happy is he who keeps the law. And then he goes on to write in Proverbs 29, verse 26, Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from the Lord. That is where you get true justice from. And when a society is committed to upholding God's law as the standard of righteousness for all people, it is blessed and flourishes. When a society is committed to upholding anything else but God's law, you get what we see now in America today. Not only that, when other nations see a nation upholding God's standard of righteousness and the justice that they are benefiting from as a result, God himself is glorified. If you have your Bibles, look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. And listen to what Moses writes. He writes this, see I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So you hear that? People from other lands saying, wow, this is a wise, this is a great nation. 
For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I am setting before you today? See, when a society actually upholds God's law, other nations look at that and say, well, that's justice right there. That's actually good. When a society abandons that, there is no true justice. So if you want justice, you must submit to God's standard of justice, God's law itself. And that's the benefit. That's another benefit. That it promotes a proper form of justice. You know, David goes on to say, going back to Psalm 19, that moreover, by them, that is the law, your servant is warned. You know, David asks in Psalm 119, verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? He says, by keeping it according to your word. And then David's son, Solomon, writes in Proverbs 14, verse 12, and then repeats himself in Proverbs 16, verse 25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, I have already mentioned numerous times how God's law is the only true and pure standard that there is. It convicts us of our sins. It makes us wise. It enlightens our eyes. It establishes true and proper justice. Along with all of that, God's law also warns us. Now, how does it do that? How does it warn us? Well, when you are consistently looking to God's moral standards, you will notice when you are straying away from that standard. The warning is that you will see that you are not walking in accordance to what God's law says is right. For example, if you are tempted to lie to someone, the ninth commandment will come to your mind by the work of the Holy Spirit and thus serve as a warning that you are about to commit an act that violates that commandment. As soon as you're about to click on that inappropriate website to view obscene pornographic material, the seventh commandment will come to your mind by the work of the Holy Spirit and thus serve as a warning that you are about to commit an act that violates this commandment. For the believer, God's moral law serves as a constant check to our conscience to ensure that we do not engage in sin, to warn us that, hey, what you're doing is not in accordance with my law. So it warns us in this way. He goes on to write, and this is the last point that we'll look at, where he says, who can discern his errors? Who can discern them? Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? You know, I mentioned earlier, even for the believer, there are sins that we commit without realizing it. There are blind spots that we even have in our redeemed state. And when we are constantly looking to God's law, more and more of those blind spots will be revealed to us. As we saw earlier, our eyes will be enlightened. I love what Charles Spurgeon wrote as it pertains to, to this passage, Psalm 19, verse 12. He wrote, if we had eyes like those of God, we should think very differently of ourselves. 
The transgressions which we see and confess are but like the farmer's small samples which he brings to the market when he has left his granary full at home. We have but a few sins which we can observe and detect compared with those which are hidden from ourselves and unseen by our fellow creatures. See, we only really see a tiny segment of all the sins that we actually commit, which is why David says, if you, O Lord, kept the record of sin, who would stand? No one would. We can't discern our errors if we're not looking to God's law. If we assume that we already know what's right and wrong, apart from God's standard telling us what is right or wrong, we're going to be sadly mistaken. There are going to be many blind spots that we would just completely ignore. And that might be the very thing that might demonstrate that we were never Christian to begin with. Now, obviously, the likelihood that we unearth every single blind spot of ours before we die is Pretty slim, more than likely, which is why our faith must always continue to rest in Christ. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we are resting in Jesus Christ for our justification. I do not want for us to forget that. I do not want for us in examining ourselves to now assume that because we are keeping God's law, therefore God must admit us into his kingdom. No, remember, our faith is always in Christ. We are always resting in him. That being said, we must diligently be examining ourselves while also diligently trusting in Christ. It goes back to the psalm that I stated last Lord's Day, going back to Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verse 166. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. I hope for your salvation. I trust in you, and I do your commandments. So as we saw today, as I hope you're able to see, God's commands, God's law, his standards have great benefits for us. While we can't earn our salvation from it, as Christians, we can build our assurance, we can gain wisdom, we can have our eyes enlightened, and we can receive warnings to keep back from falling into sin. Therefore, it is our duty to continue as obedient Christians to faithfully follow God's moral law. As a nation, God's law is the best standard of justice that we can have. A nation who faithfully commits to God's laws, the law of the land, will be blessed. For the unrepentant sinner, God's law is what humbles you into no longer trusting in yourself to be right before God, and it forces you to look to Christ and trust in him for your salvation. So while much of God's law has been done away with, with the ceremonial and civil laws in particular, God's moral law still continues and as such continues to be a great benefit for all of us. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, the conclusion, when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. God's law applies to everyone believer and unbeliever. It is what guides the steps of Christians throughout their lives. It is what guides nations in true justice. And it is what guides unbelievers to Christ. So as we continue to examine God's law in the upcoming weeks, and we will, let us not forget that very important truth from Solomon. And let us never forget 
that there is indeed a great benefit to all those who look to God's law. Let's now go to the Lord our God in prayer.